This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. During the pandemic lockdowns, many people hailed technology for enabling many of us to continue working or going to school remotely. But there's a flip side, too, because a lot of us are just downright sick of screens at this point. They're taking a real toll on our lives in ways that many people haven't even previously considered. What are the downsides to our attachments to our computers and our smartphones? We're going to get into it today with David Murrow. He is the director of Church for Men and author of the book, we'll be discussing called Drowning in Screen Time. David, it's great to have you here. How are you? Doing well, Janet. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. What do you make of this reality that screens now seem to be the thing that holds society together? This is kind of a bizarre shift in all of our lives over the last several years. You know, we were on the precipice of that already before COVID hit. Um, A pre-pandemic survey from Nielsen Media Research found that the typical North American spent about nine hours a day consuming screen content between your smartphones, video games, uh, television watching. So we were already giving the lion's share of our attention to our screens. And then pandemic hit and we began worshiping on screen, going to school on screen. And you're right, there is a growing backlash and people are asking, you know, how do I get back into real life? And that's really what I've kind of devoted my ministry to in the next year is to trying to help churches and individuals recapture real life and be comfortable again in a world that's not on screen. That sounds great to me. I love that idea. What about your own life with screens? Certainly you've struggled with it the way a lot of us have as well. But what did you learn about being a recovering screen addict? Well, it's so easy to uh, to be pulled in. I liken it to uh, beach swimming. There's a, one of the parables at the beginning of my book. It's based on five parables, and one of them is about a man who just kind of goes in ankle deep and then neck deep, or, uh, uh, ankle deep and waist deep, and then all, before he knows it, he's neck deep in the water and begins drowning. And that's sort of the way society has gone. Screen content has only been around 125 years. 1895 was the first movie shown in America. And uh, over the time we've had, then we had for 50 years, it was if you wanted screen time, you went to a theater. And then screens came into our homes with television. And then our screens became interactive with video games and computers. And then we took them everywhere with smartphones. And so that's how screens have wormed their way into more and more of our time. And, you know, I'm like anybody else. I, I found myself using all those spare moments in my schedule to look at my, you know, check my uh, Facebook or see what's going on in the news. And I realized I was losing touch with real life. And yeah. so that was kind of the motivation behind the book. Also, I've worked in the screen business for 40 years. I'm a television producer by trade. 
And I felt like I needed to kind of blow the whistle on some of the tricks that people in my business use to keep you engaged with your screens and ignoring real life. Well, that's a really important angle on this. Share a little bit, if you would, about some of those tricks, because you hear these stories, for example, of these big tech giants who won't let their kids have screens, which tells you more than you probably (laughs) need to know. I mean, as far as what their priorities are with their their own children, clearly they know what they're doing. What are they doing? Well, what screens under screen producers uh, content producers understand how our brains are wired uh, why don't you imagine yourself walking through a forest and you know beautiful trees and you don't really notice the trees you're just kind of having a beautiful day and all of a sudden a wolf crosses your path what does your brain focus on are you focused on the trees or the flowers or the birds no your your brain goes right to that wolf right because that wolf is a threat and the the screen produce uh, content producers know this about our brains we respond to threats and so uh, media companies put the most threatening spin on stories. You know, we're all going to die. Uh, we've, you know, this, 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 every day it's a new threat. And that is caught, one of the reasons we're seeing a really high um, rising tide of anxiety, even among believers, you know, who supposedly have their faith in Jesus. Uh, I've never seen the church more threat uh, responsive than it is right now. Yeah. And I think that's a result of us watching so much television news, cable news, or consuming on the internet these threatening stories that get our attention. And I think it's bad for us. Our eyes are supposed to be fixed on Jesus, and we're fixed on the latest crisis all the time. Oh, yeah. And it never ends, and it's 24-7. Would you say that social media is the worst angle on, you know, when we're talking about technology that creates all that anxiety in us? Would you say it's more due to social media and the growth of social media that, that has antagonized us more and added more to that problem? Well, it has, but, but you really want to start with cable news. Um, you know, prior to the launch of CNN in 1980, um, the, there were basically, you'd get a half hour of local news and a half hour of national news per day. Yep. And then it was back to mindless entertainment like Gilligan's Island and Batman. And, you know, so we really weren't exposed to that much news. When Ted Turner launched CNN and then Fox News came along and MSNBC and all these competing channels came along, they learn to trot out wolves 24-7. <laughs> and so we, our perception of the world began to change. We began to not believe what was happening in our lives. We began to believe what we saw on our screens. And our screens told us that our cities were on fire, that there were earthquakes, and pest, right. you know, all these horrible things happening all the time. And it's really raised our level of, of uh, paranoia and anxiety to a fever pitch. Yes. And that, that's really where it started. And then, of course, social media just threw fuel on the fire because now you've got these, uh, these stories that are designed to panic us and they're being shared by people that we love and care yeah. about. Yeah. And so that brings a, a higher level of credibility, even though many of those sto- a lot of those stories are even being placed by like Russian disinformation, troll farms. And we just as believers, we have to be much more discerning about what we believe and what we fix our eyes on. Oh, completely. And and when you're bringing in social media to that problem of cable news, now we have the added problem of I have a friend who is believing what CNN is saying about X story. And if I argue with my friend, my friend will block me or say something nasty to me <laughs> on social media. Now I have two problems. I have the anxiety I feel from the original story. And then I have a relationship problem with somebody on the Internet. And in person, we 
probably never would have had that fight. But social media, in, in so many instances, creates the opportunity to fight and makes it much more easy than it would be in person. That 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 is one of the angles on the news that's just new and and really upsetting for a lot of us. Well, sure. And, you know, humans are tribal animals. We are people. We we try to find our tribe, our people that agree with us. And there's nothing stronger to make us feel good about ourselves than to look down on somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the danger of the tribalism that's happening online, is that um, we are tempted as Christians to look down on those who disagree with us. And meanwhile, you know, non-Christians look down on Christians. And it's just creating this war that doesn't need to be there. It, you know, I think, I think we actually, there are people like in my, in my Facebook feed who believe all kinds of crazy things and are always using social media to make them feel better about themselves. Instead of reaching out in love and being kind to others on their social media feed, they're constantly flaming the people, oh, those stupid liberals or those heartless conservatives or whatever it is. Yes. And they're just using it as a way of looking down on others rather than trying to build them up. Well, that is one of the things that goes on. And then it weakens relationships. That's another thing that you mention in your book. It's true. Um, well, swipe left, swipe right. Um, we, Yeah, relationships are commodities now. Um, you know, it used to be that you knew a fairly small number of people that were introduced to you in your village or your city or your town. And, you know, that's how people got together for romantic relationships. Maybe you knew people from school. Now the universe of potential romantic partners or whatever is is unlimited, you know, with a, a dating app. And so what it's doing is it's causing men, particularly high-status men, to play the field because they have so many options. Women are playing along with this game, but they're not finding, you know, the security that they might crave, you know, a, a long-term relationship. Women are usually more interested in long-term than playing the field. Right. And it's just really uh, causing relationships to be uh, surface and, uh, uh, what am I trying, disposable. And it's really, really messing up the dating scene, even in the church. Oh, it is. And you can see people talking about that online and discussing their bad experiences in that regard. And, you know, this is so important to us because when we're talking about what's going on with technology, again, technology can be a wonderful thing, but there are definitely downsides when we're drowning in it. We'll come back with David Morrow. You're listening to Janet Mufford today. Stay with us. The Ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives and souls by meeting moms where they are and introducing them to their preborn babies through ultrasound. As soon as I saw that heartbeat, it was over. I cried the hottest tears I've ever cried, and I felt a fire in my belly and in my soul, and God touched me that day. He pierced my heart for my child, and I felt love. Preborn stands in the gap for abortion-minded women across America by providing free ultrasounds and the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. When a mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she'll choose life eight out of ten times. For your gift of $140 today, you can help rescue five preborn babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY. 
855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. There's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com or call now 855-402-2229. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. David Murrow is here writing about drowning in screen time. It's the name of his new book, A Lifeline for Adults, Parents, Teachers, and Ministers Who Want to Reclaim Their Real Lives. David, we were talking about some of the downsides of screen time. Can you talk about this issue of real life being one of the things that we miss out on because of screens? This is obviously quite a problem as people spend more and more hours on their screens. But what is it doing to us when we are overdoing it on the smartphones, the computers, and and TV time? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled about, uh, you know, the screen-obsessed teenager, the girl who's on Instagram, you know, 11 hours a day, constantly posting this and that. And what's happening is, is we've got a generation now that has had always on Internet for about 20 years, starting with Gen X, broadband Internet came into the picture. And then with the advent of smartphones, which became widespread in about 2010, we now have 10 years of data showing what's happening to these folks. And what it does is it creates um, a, a, an emotional fragility. Because uh, what happens is, is young people who grow up digital get used to living in a world they can control and manipulate. Yeah. If they see something they dislike, they cancel it. They un- if they see a person who says something they, don't, they disagree with, they unfriend. And so what college students now are now doing is they're bringing that, that ethos that they learned online into the real world, and they're trying to cancel free speech. Yep. They're trying to block and dox people they disagree with. And what they don't understand is that you can't treat real-life relationships the way you do online relationships. So as a result, we're seeing young people disposing of their relationships as if, it, as if these were um, online and there's this unprecedented spike in loneliness and depression because they're the most isolated genu- generation ever. Even as they're plugged in 24-7 to the Internet, they don't have any real people that they can rely on in their lives. And it's causing a crisis in their lives. Well, you're right about that. And you do see the transfer of that mentality from what you can do on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter to wanting to do the same sorts of things in real life. So what kind of long term effect do you think this brings about in society when we have bought into this idea that if I can unfriend you on the Internet, I I shouldn't listen to you in real life either because I just want to create my own world where meanies like you or people who disagree with me don't exist? Yeah, people are losing their relational grit 
and that's a term I love. It um, it means that uh, folks folks from my generation. I grew up in the 1960s. You know, we didn't have all these online tools. We were stuck with our schoolmates, the ones that poked us in the <laughs> arm and you know called us names, and yep. we we learned uh, relational grit, the ability to stay in relationships with people who may, you know, persecuted us or, you know, treated us maybe not the best. I'm not talking about, you know, bullying and being beat up, but I'm just saying that just the ability to to stay in a relationship that gets somewhat uncomfortable. That's what's happening with young people today is because they've learned to cancel and they've learned to get out of relationships online. They do the very same thing in the real world and it's leading to real life isolation. And I just wonder if they're going to be able to, you know, stick through the, the difficulties of a marriage, because Janet, I'm, I'm married. I've been married 37 years. It has not been a picnic every day. <laughs> and you've got to you've got to learn to deal with the ups and downs. And I think growing up online, the way you deal with uh, with ups and downs is you just get out of them. Yeah. So I'm very concerned about what the long-term effects are going to be. I am too. That's a really good point. Plus, we have to look at what screens do to our bodies. You talked a little bit about what they do to our mm-hmm. brains, but you say we're getting sleepier, we're getting fatter, we're getting sicker. How do screens play a part in that? Well, the, pre- the predecessor to screen entertainment in the home was radio. Yes. You know, Jack Penny and the, you know, the shadow and people would listen to radio dramas the radio would be turned up or the record player would be turned up, but they were still active. They were still moving around the house, doing chores or, you know, working on things. But when screens came into our, our houses, that caused us to have to sit down. You can't really watch television without immobilizing your body. Right. And so the, the average woman in America now weighs as much as the average man did in 1960, which mm. was at the beginning of the screen age. Wow. And a lot of that is due to the fact that when we come home, we plop down on the couch, we grab our bag of Doritos, and we start interacting with a screen. So, yes, it's definitely having some ill health effects for us. And, you know, we've got to stay active. We've got to terrorize off the screen and get back into the real world. Yeah, we sure do. So help us out here. When you talk to people who want to get their screen usage under control, what are some good ways to begin to do that? Clearly, we're never going to be able to necessarily completely break free because we have to be on Mm -hmm. computers for our jobs or whatnot. But what about reducing your screen time, getting more into the real world and solving some of these problems that technology creates for us? Well, I can get you to the 50-yard line real quick. The easiest thing that you can do is focus on eliminating mindless screen time. Those moments when you're waiting at the airport or you're standing in line at the grocery store. What you need to do is guard those moments where your attention is not demanded by something else. Don't give those moments over to a screen. Practice looking at people or, uh, or reading a book or how about praying for the people around you? Yes. Uh, practice quick spiritual disciplines to build your build your uh, heart and your, your spiritual life. I found that it was very, very difficult to pry my eyes away from my screen until I started doing it. <laughs> and now I regularly halt. Uh, for a while, I put a rubber band around my um, wrist, and if I reached for my screen, I'd snap myself. <laughs> anything that anything that you have to do, if you're the type who gets home and immediately turns on the television, don't do that. Play streaming music in the house, yeah. something that will allow you to continue to move around. If you're the type who plops down with a you know video game after work, and that's your reward, set a timer, 30 minutes of uh, you know Halo or whatever you play, and then it's back to the real world. 
If you can just focus on eliminating that mindless screen time, you're halfway to your goal. Well, that's a great idea. And and I think, too, some of the fasts work. I've heard about this before, and I try to implement this on the weekends. Try to stay off the phone. I mean, try to be mm-hmm. with your family. Try to do things outside. Try to have some semblance of a life. The, the Internet will still be there when you get back. And I think that's <laughs> maybe some of the problem, isn't it? Don't you think, David, with some people, they think, I'm going to miss something if I'm not on the Internet all the time. I'm going to miss that wolf. Yeah, right. yeah, the wolf that they've trotted out there. No, there'll be another wolf. So, yeah, um, yeah uh, screen-free Sundays is a really good idea for individuals. And one of the things I tell parents is uh, screen-free evenings. When you come together, hopefully you come together at the table for dinner. Everyone surrenders their personal devices. Um, so, you know, your teenagers, and we put them on chargers, and they're gone for the evening. And then, well, then what do you do? Well, go take, if the weather's nice, go take a bike ride, do something as a family. Just build those memories. Even if it's sitting down and watching a family movie, that's better than everyone being in their own corner on their own screen. Right. You know, screens aren't the problem. The problem is the isolation that results when we all have our own screens and we're, t- we're alone together. Mm-hmm. We're in the same room, but we're not interacting with one another and we're preempting the, the, the everyday interactions that build relationships with others. Well, this is interesting, too, because it, uh, many people that I've been talking to recently have said in particular they want to get off social media or certain forms of social media because that tends to give them the most anxiety. And I have mm-hmm. found that I, I've done some of that myself. That makes such a big difference when you're not just totally hyped up with the wolf in front of you on every single tweet that you're reading, it would seem some days. What about your mm-hmm. opinion on social media fasting or even social media, you know, escaping for, for good, you know, getting off social media altogether? Where, where do you come down on that issue? I think it's a wonderful thing. I, you know, a lot of Christians were freaking out during the election because uh, they were on this uh, platform called Parler, and yeah. they were being, you know, feeling they were censored by Facebook. I'm sitting here thinking, this is the best thing that can happen to you. <laughs> Let it happen. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, yep. you know, it's, I, I think responsible social media use is, is not a problem. You need to purge the trolls from your site. You know, those people that are just constantly uh, posting negativity or half-truths. There's mm, certain yep. people that I love them in real life, but they are ogres on social media. <laughs> yes. They bring me down and I've just got to unfriend them or, or at least unfollow them. Yeah. So, you know, it's all about discern- discernment and, you know, making the decision and uh, eliminating that mindless uh looking for that wolf. If you can do that, then you're going to be okay. Well, and when you talk about kids, one of the problems you bring up in your book, which is such an important problem, is the problem of porn, the problem of sexual predators who go after kids. I mean, this is an additional layer of concern that is especially, uh, you know, relevant to your children. So what should parents do as far as protecting their kids in that regard and kind of how to guide your kids, even your teenagers, uh, on internet usage and screen time, keeping those situations in mind? Well, the best piece of advice is start early. And I would never give a kid his own personal screen until he's at least 10 or 11 years old. And even then, the screen needs to be completely locked down, no internet. You know, maybe you give him a little Nintendo game or something, something that's that's proprietary but has no web access. I see kids as young as three years old, they have their own little Amazon Fire tablet. And I kind of ask the parents, I say, do you think that's a good idea? And they'll say, well, it's completely kid-oriented. You can't get to any adult stuff. And I say, but look what you're doing. You're teaching your kid the moment he or she is bored 
to pick up a screen. Right. And you're teaching them to become digital lords over a digital realm that they control. So you're setting them, so setting them up for isolation and anxiety when they're older, and you're teaching them how not to interact with, you know, the toys and the analog world that, you know, building forts and playing with stuff in the kitchen, things that we did when we were kids. And that's right. And they're so important to their brain development. Well, so, yeah. no, no, no screens. Never give a, a kid a personal screen until they're at least a preteen. Yeah. And th- what a good point that you brought that up, because you're right. That's such an important part of childhood is being able to do those fun things and play games and pretend and use mm-hmm. your imagination. And when you're attached to a screen, yeah. that may make mom's job easier when she's needing to get something done, but it's not very good for the kid. And it's important for us to remember that. Well, lots of good tips in this book, Drowning in Screen Time. David Murrow with us. And it's been so good talking to you, David. Thanks for all your good advice. Wonderful book. Thank you, Janet. I appreciate the interview. All right. You take care. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Philippians 1.29 tells us, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. But then we also see in Isaiah 53.4 these words, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Suffering is one of the constant themes in Scripture, and yet many of us wrestle with the whys of suffering, the purpose, ultimately, of what we're going through and what suffering ought to produce in us, especially as Christians. So we're going to be tackling this very important universal concept Concept of suffering with Dr. Brian Han Gregg, who is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at the University of Sioux Falls in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and author of the book we'll be discussing called What Does the Bible Say About Suffering? Brian, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Janet. Yeah, you know, you say in your experience, no single question has come up as often or with as much urgency as this subject of God's relationship to our suffering, not merely the suffering, but also what does God think about my suffering? Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is the question that seems to be most common? Well, it's a combination of things, I think. On the one hand, there's not a one of us that won't experience some genuine over our head kind of suffering before we uh, before we die, right. and on the other hand, uh, it's it's a very mysterious question. I mean, it's a it's a question that we, as people who believe in God's goodness and absolute power, uh, we're gonna we're gonna struggle with um, how to make sense of this. Uh, why is uh, this happening to me or my friend or my family? Um, and so it's it's a, a pressing concern. 
Yeah, it really is. And as you say, totally common to the human experience. But you know, it's interesting. You say right at the outside of the book that the focus in scripture doesn't really focus so much on explaining why we go through suffering as much as God's various responses to suffering, which is a good observation. Why does that matter, do you think, that the Bible speaks more to God reacting and really responding to suffering in various ways? Rather than actually telling Job, for example, this is exactly why I had you go through all your yeah, suffering. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I'm I'm not sure if it's the tack I would have taken. Um, <laughs> there's there's a sense in which when I'm suffering, I want to know why, and I I've thought about why that is such a compelling question for me, and I think it boils down to my need for control. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to be able to fix the problem. I want to um, escape from this suffering. So I'm not as interested in learning what the suffering has to teach me or yeah. um, how it might shape me, um, a test that it might prove to be in my life or, or any number of other things. I, I just want it to end. Yeah. Um, and I think God sees a bigger picture than we do, um, that it's probably a lot more complicated than we think it is, and that he certainly, in terms of the biblical witness, is uh, pressing home that he has a lot of things to 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 say about how he's responding to suffering, um, that he's present in the midst of our suffering, that he seeks to comfort us when we suffer, that he is the one who can and will overcome suffering um, in the small ways in our lives, but also, of course, in the in the big peril that awaits us in terms of death. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are, those are in some ways the more pressing concerns for God, and, and maybe most dramatically of all, He demonstrates that he is a God who is willing to suffer. And, you know, early Christians were roundly mocked for this, uh, that that your your God was crucified. That's that's ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, And yet, talk about identification with you and me, um, the God who knows suffering and who's taken it on himself. Oh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Well, and you, you look at how people will react sometimes to other people's suffering and how just really... I don't know, shallow people can be about it. The mm-hmm. Romans 828 crowd, sometimes they'll come along yeah. at funerals and say, oh, everything, yeah, everything will work out for the best. That is not comforting, even though that's a, a great verse and a truth mm-hmm. and especially needs to be seen in all the context there in that uh, whole chapter. But what about the shallow responses that sometimes people will have, to, you know, trotting out one Bible verse here or there yeah. that ultimately yeah. doesn't comfort you when you're feeling that suffering? Yeah. Uh, that's a major theme of this book, actually. I, you know, this book was born out of experiences that I had. I teach at a small liberal arts college in the Midwest, um, and I teach intro the Bible among other things. And a lot of those early experiences uh, were of students coming to me and and wanting to know more how they should be thinking about suffering in light of who God is. And their their answers were usually scripted, if you, if you will. I mean, they were, they were formula. Yeah. Um, and, and if I just take this formula, if I manage to get the right one to start with, but if I take it and apply it to everything, everything should make sense. Hmm. And I found that it was not only inadequate, but in some cases quite disastrous. Um, they were failing to recognize the, the fullness of what the Bible has to say on the issue of suffering. And I think that's one of the principal ways we can go wrong when thinking about our own suffering or, frankly, the suffering of someone else. Um, And so my approach here is to lay out, I lay out 12 different responses that we see in the Bible to suffering and and liken it to a choir. Um, 
you know, choir is very different than a than a pop song today, right. uh, where a pop song there's a simple melody. You're listening to one voice usually, whereas a, a choir, I mean, they is sometimes very complex harmonies. You've got lots of different voices um, singing, you know, different like altos and tenors and sopranos, and it's together that they they provide an adequate response. Um, these various approaches that the Bible has to suffering. I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good. You're right. It's not just one voice. Well, when you talk about your different biblical approaches to suffering, one of the ones you discuss is suffering and the God of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, there yeah. is a strong theme, obviously, that people say this is happening because God is punishing you. There are a lot of different ways you can go on that. But you use the mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 30 passage, verses 15 mm-hmm. through 20. What do you glean from that on the passage uh, from that passage on the issue of God and justice? Yeah, I actually start with this uh, this response because it's an important baseline, I think, to uh, the Hebrews as they were developing some understanding about how God's working. Um, and, and it's very basic. I mean, it's the sense that uh, if good is transpiring in my life, then God is blessing me. And if uh, there's, there's suffering, if there's bad, then um, I've done something to deserve that. So basic punishment or reward, essentially. Uh, and, and this isn't wrong. I mean, I'd like to start by saying that there are times and places where God does work in precisely these ways. And that's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. There are places you can point to the New Testament where this is a very simple and effective to get, way to get his point across. Right. But it's, it's limited. Uh, that as soon as you take the move that uh, Job's friends take and say, well, if you're continuing to be in hardship, uh, you must need to repent something. We we potentially are doing real damage. Um, you know, I just saw a movie with my kids. I, I don't know, a couple days ago. It's called what is it called? When uh, miracles from heaven. It was mm. called. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen this or heard of it. Not but, yet. I've heard of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's actually a lovely movie, and and partly it's uh, effective because it doesn't give a simplistic answer to some hard questions. But there, there are a couple characters in there who at one point approach uh, the woman whose you know, life is full of trouble for a variety of reasons and simply say, mm, this trouble's been going on long enough. Uh, clearly, you need to figure out what you did wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, as the movie makes quite plain, it, it's not, not an effective response in the moment. No. <laughs> um, no. no. It's, well, it reminds me of John 9, where the disciples come to Jesus and talk about mm-hmm. the man born blind. You know, who sinned, this yeah, man or his it, parents? Jesus? Right. Yeah. And Jesus says, neither this man or his parents. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, you know, just because he's suffering yeah. doesn't mean that I'm, I'm punishing him in some way. Yeah. Well, and the disciples then look at each other and think, it's more complicated. <laughs> Simpletons oh, that they were. <laughs> That's right. Well, and that also brings up the issue of suffering sometimes being part of testing or training, yeah. and how yeah. God has different purposes in suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of us like testing or training. Um, you know, I, I teach for a living, and my students wouldn't tell you that they enjoy being tested, but. <laughs> There, there's an important dimension there. They, they definitely see if what they think is true about where they are is, in fact, true. Um, it's easy to walk around and, and talk about, you know, my faith uh, in God and how I, I live this life of trust. But when that trust is put to the test, as it was for Israel in the wilderness, for instance, what are they going to do? Uh, will they re- actually demonstrate trust? That is a good question. We're going to come back. What does the Bible say about suffering? We'll talk more with Dr. Brian Hungreg when we return on Janet Meffer Today. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to his owner, one of only a few in that church to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because he doesn't own one. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. We're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given right now will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today discussing that very universal problem of suffering. And we all go through certain types of suffering. Some people suffer way more than others. And we all wrestle with this idea of why is God allowing this, just as Job did back in his own day? Why am I being allowed to go through what I'm going through? And this is just such a great discussion with Dr. Brian Hahn Gregg. His book is What Does the Bible Say About Suffering? We were talking a little bit about the difference here. When when we speak of suffering as being something that God might be doing to punish me. You address that issue. But also we have times in the Bible where God's people are tested or are being trained or disciplined. And sometimes it's difficult to know, am I being tested or trained with this suffering or is this just a deep mystery? How do you figure that out if you're just going through something and you're really obsessed with why is this happening? Is there a way to even know? Yeah, this discernment is key, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Let me, let me, characterize something of the difference I perceive between the testing and the training, for starters. Uh, we talked just a little bit before commercial break about uh, testing. Uh, training, I, I think, I would, you know, it's often called soul-making or something like that, this sense that God can, can and does use the difficult periods of our life to grow us in terms of our character and our values and our disposition um, in trust and in all kinds of ways that are important. I, I would like to emphasize that uh, testing and training look very different potentially then. So testing is something that God might initiate in our lives, and I think it's, it happens, but it's, it's on the rarer side, um, and we've been well prepared for it. Uh, I use the, 
the example of Israel in the wilderness when I talk about testing, that they've had these tremendous experiences of God in Egypt who has delivered them and carved out a way for them and is present to them in a pillar of fire and cloud and I mean, just amazing stuff. Right. And then he takes them into a place and they find themselves without the food they need or without the water they need. And, and it, these are sort of little tests to see, have you learned? Have you learned that you can trust me here, that, that you that I can provide for you? And we know it doesn't go very well for them in right. those tests. Yeah. Uh, but it's not very often that God is said to test his people like it does there in Exodus. Training um, is something that certainly could be initiated by God, but I'd like to emphasize that it, it needn't be. Um, these may be just the circumstances of our lives, the, the bad things that happen to us, that God then takes up and uh, redemptively uses for our good. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing about God. I yeah. love the fact that our God is redemptive, yes. uh, that he can take something that's intrinsically not good and bring good out of it. Um, I don't think that means that we might, will necessarily look back at the event and say, oh, I'm so glad that happened. <laughs> you know, I'd, if I lose my child, mm. I'm never, ever going to get to a place where I think I'm not the, I wouldn't be the person I am today if that didn't happen, so I'm grateful it happened. Yeah. Uh, but it also is meaningful that God takes it up and makes us a new person through it. Um, That's a good so, distinction. Yeah. Yes, like the people who say, oh, well, so-and-so had to die so his brother-in-law could come to know the Lord. I mean, those things right. drive me nuts as if the Lord... Yeah, I find that rather distressing myself. Oh, just I distressing. A, a misapplication of God's sovereignty there. Yeah, for sure. What about this issue of choice? Um, yeah. Those who suffer because they did something they shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think the Bible is, is pretty plain about the fact that we're accountable for our actions and... Um, and sadly, our sinful actions, you know, the ill effects of those aren't just reaped by us, but by others as well. Um, if I started taking heroin, there are all kinds of negative um, impacts on me, from my body to my spirit to my relationships, and, and other people are being impacted as well. Yes. Um, and so certainly some of the suffering we go through is is a direct result of bad choices that people are making. Right. And that's that seems to be a little bit easier to d- discern, to say, well, I did yeah, something yeah. really dumb. You know, I, I, dr- yeah. I had six beers and I got behind the wheel of a yeah. car and I got in a car accident. I mean, that's not that's not the kind of suffering that would be mysterious then. Right. So don't take heroin. Jim. No, never, never, never. <laughs> no. Yes, I appreciate <laughs> that lesson. That's that's number one on my list today. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, something else that you've touched on that I think is also very important, the sovereignty mm-hmm. of God and suffering. Uh, we get yeah. go again and again to the book of Job and, and how yeah. that plays itself out in the friends who were no friends at all in many mm-hmm. respects. But, you know, here's God saying to Job, where were you when I laid out the foundations of the earth? You know, he, mm-hmm. he won't yeah. give Job that answer. How does God use suffering in his power and his authority for his purposes in a way that makes sense. In other words, when we talk about sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, which the Bible speaks to, what is that all about? How do you explain that to somebody who really doesn't understand why would God in his sovereignty want me to suffer? Yeah. Well, you've raised a couple of interesting things. Uh, On the one hand, uh, I think the big takeaway from Job is that there's always going to be mystery in this for us, that we 
we are very small compared to God and not always privy to his plans. Uh, and while we may know more in Job than even Job knows, there are always going to be situations where we're called to trust God um, in the midst of, of crisis. Sure. And, and, and we're not going to have answers. Um, I, I would like to point out, though, that, that Job isn't left in the dark, uh, that God shows up, Yes. that he speaks to Job. He, his presence seems like it's enough for Job, ultimately. And, um, and that kind of puts a different cast on, on that, that whole sequence of events, I think. It does. But you also raised this idea of suffering with God, uh, and in some deep sense, for God. And, and Jesus opens up a lot of these new doors for understanding suffering. Um, we're obviously called to walk in his footsteps. We're, we're shown and told that uh, as, we, as we learn to take up our own cross and deny ourselves and, and make choices that aren't always for my best well, you know, for my immediate well-being, that God can use those and does in really remarkable ways. You think of really famous missionaries that you might admire. I, I, I know that I've got some yeah. um, who, who made choices to live a life that was difficult. Yes. Um, and they were very aware of those choices going in. And, and they suffered alongside Christ in that sense. Uh, but the reward was eternal. Um, you know, they, they reaped a harvest that they participated with the king in bringing people into the kingdom. And, and there's real joy and purpose in that. Um, there is. They can't be lost either. What about Christians? What do you think of Christians who will say, I'm not suffering. I look across the world and I see some of these Christians dying for Christ. They're being martyred. They're being, you know, they're missionaries to dangerous places and they got killed yeah. and they're super Christians. And I don't yeah. suffer that much. Is God putting me on a different lower tier as a Christian because I'm not suffering more? I have actually heard Christians talk like that. The fact that I'm not suffering, I'm doing something wrong. How do you respond to that? Oh, I don't think there's ever a point at which we glory in suffering in, in the way that you're talking about. Um, that Bring it on, because right. it's evidence that God is with me. Right. Um, if, if we live purposefully in the kingdom and follow Jesus, plenty of suffering will come our way. Yes. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we've got lots of biblical characters that model that out, uh, including Paul, of course. Uh, but but we don't need to go seeking suffering. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like asking the question about poverty. Does, does God have this special heart for the poor? Yes. Um, but he also is trying to lift people out of poverty. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and so the idea is not, you know, to abase oneself utterly and be totally poor because that's the way to, to enter into God's good graces. Yes. Um, there's a, it's a little more complicated than that. No, I agree with you. I'm, I'm glad that you said it that way, and it makes a lot of sense. Ultimately, as you say, suffering is a mystery. How mm. does that come to bear, or how could it come to bear on our lives in a way that gives us peace in the midst of it? Because we don't have to have control. We don't have to know all of the answers, and God isn't going to mm-hmm. give us all of the answers. His mm-hmm. ways are above our ways, and his thoughts are above our thoughts. How do you rest in that as a Christian, that I don't need to know every single situation, where what the suffering was ultimately for? Well, I think we grow into an understanding of that, um, I think early on in our, our faith lives, we often feel compelled to have answers. I'm more and more getting to a place where 
trusting God means understanding a lot, but not having answers. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, it does. It really, um, really does. So, yep. So yeah, it, it's a matter of taking what God gives us, I think, and seeing how that ministers to us and That's how we can minister to others with it. Very good. Well, the name of the book, What Does the Bible Say About Suffering? Dr. Brian Hongreg with us. Brian, it was great to have you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed your book and talking to you today. Oh, I enjoyed it too. It was delightful. All right. You take care. God bless you. And thank you All for right. being with us so much. Take care. Okay. JanetMefford.com. We'll see you there. We'll see you next time.